I'm Edward Nersessian, uh, director of the director of the Helix Center, and I welcome you to today's program on the topology of fear. Uh, I should tell you that next Saturday the program is on um, Elizabeth Bishop, and the participants are Bonnie Costello, uh, Lloyd Schwartz, uh, Alice Quinn, and Jean Valentine. Uh, programs for April will be on our website. Uh, on the website, we also now have a section for conversation, so if there are any thoughts and questions that you have after today's meeting or opinions that you have, you can go on that side, on that, on their conversation and uh, write whatever you are thinking. Uh, today's roundtable was proposed by Professor Graciela Cicilniski, she's pro professor of economics at Columbia University. I'm going to just give you very brief points from their bio biography of the group, uh, bibliography of the group, or whatever, biography and <laughs> bibliography of the group. She's professor of economics and mathematical statistics and the university senator at Columbia University. Uh, she is director of the Consortium for Risk Management and has worked extensively on the Kyoto Protocol. She is the lead author of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and acts as a special advisor to several UN organizations and heads of state. Paul Glimscher, uh, who like Graciela has been here already before, is the director for the center of, for, of the Center for Neuroeconomics at New York University and Julius Silver Professor of Neuroscience, Economics and Psychology at NYU Center for Neuroscience. He is the author of uh, Foundations for Neuroeconomic Analysis, Neuroeconomics, Decision Making and the Brain, and which is the winner of the American Association of Publishers, Economics and Social Science, Sciences Book of the Year. And his book, Decisions, Uncertainty, and the Brain, the Science of Neuroeconomics, is the winner of the American Association of Publisher, uh, Publishers Medical Sciences Book of the Year. Linda Keen is professor of mathematics, graduate center, and Lehman College of the City University of New York. She, uh, her research spans various parts of complex analysis, including complex dynamics, hyperbol hyperbolic manifolds, and Teichmuller theory. She is the co-author of Hyperbolic Geometry from a Local Viewpoint and has edited five books. She's a recipient of the Edwin S. Webster Abbey Moss Rockefeller Award from MIT. Joel Ledoux, who has been here many times, is professor, uh, he's university professor and Henry and Lucy Moses professor of science, Center for Neuroscience at the department, the, the Center for Neural Science and the Department of Psychology at NYU. Uh, he's director of the Emotional Brain Institute and the author of the book Emotional Brain. Uh, the Mysterious Underpinnings of Emotional Life and Synaptic Self, How Our Brains Become Who We Are. He's the editor of The Self, From Soul to Brain, and co-editor of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, Basic Science and Plan Clinical Practice. 
David Lichtenstein, who's sitting here, is co-founder of APRE CUSA Analytic Association in New York. He's a co-founder, faculty member, and supervisor at APRE CUSA Analytic Association in New York, editor of Division Review, a quarterly psychoanalytic forum, and adjunct professor of psychology at uh, the SUNY postdoctoral program and also he's at Adelphi, Adelphi University Lerner Institute. He has written many articles, including Born in Exile, There's No Place Like Home, and If It Be Not Now, right? And uh, at the Cardozo, Cardozo Law Review. So uh, Graziella is going to get things going. The topology of fear, which is the title of this uh, meeting today, this uh, roundtable, puts together two different concepts. One from mathematics, pure mathematics, and that's topology. And the other one is uh, fear and generally emotions. And we have here specialists from both. Um, so I wanted to introduce very briefly the uh, topic before we have the usual format that these roundtables use. We're all very curious about emotions. And the emotion of fear is uh, very uh, well understood by anybody who looks at the what happens on an everyday basis and the press, what the press chooses, etc. And uh, the uh, article, The Topology of Fear, which is, the, uh, which is here, is an article I published uh, a few years ago. Um, essentially, looks for a mathematical explanation of how fear fits and helps define our decisions in a way that is not the same as we are used to. And we are talking, we are talking, we have here very impressive specialists. In fact, the best thing about this roundtable are the people here. And uh, so I'm not going to be talking too much about that because that's their field, although I have done some experimental work on this. But the critical thing about topology is that it helps you explain a form of rationality that puts fear in a rational context in a way that is different than what we are used to in decisions, analysis, and in, in psychology, and in economics, et cetera, et cetera, in the social sciences. So how does that work? The, the branch of mathematics, topology, uh, we were discussing just before with Linda, who is a mathematician, and she can tell you about that, is really about what does it mean to be nearby? What does it mean to be similar, nearby? And there are very different versions about what that means. For example, you can say that the weather in New York is similar to the weather on, in Siberia, uh, if, on average, we have the same temperature. But if in Siberia or in a desert, the temperature is extremely cold over parts of the year and then very hot over others, you would say, no, it's not quite the same. So what do you mean the weather is similar in New York and in Siberia? What exactly do you mean by that? 
There are two versions, at least two, but there are two actually. One is, let's look at things on the average. Let's look at the average of the weather over this century, over this millennium, that's one way. Over the Earth, that's another way. And the other way is look at the extremals. What's the worst that can happen? What's the highest and the lowest? And we won't say that things are close by unless the extremals are nearby. And if we do that, we're looking at what nearby means in a completely different way. We define the completely different topology. And all of a sudden, what appeared to be rational behavior because of emotional reasons appears to be mathematically very, very rational. So just wanted to be more precise. In the paper, uh, The Topology of Fear, Paul said brief outline. And it has to be very brief. I looked at the disjoint that appears when you try to explain in experiments how people behave under conditions of fear, and they appear to behave irrationally. An experiment upon experiment and upon experiment shows that. And where does it come from? So in that paper, I show that if you look at the axioms, which are the basic beliefs on which the theory of decision is based, and you assume that instead of making decisions on the average and valuing the average and caring about the average, you look at extremals. Mathematically, that difference is the topology of fear. And in terms of decisions, it leads you to completely different decisions and rationality. For example, you would say that if you wanted to invest in a fund, you may look at the average returns that this fund brings to the investors. But you may say, that's OK, that's all very good, but I'm afraid there will be a market crash, fear. And therefore, I'm going to invest in the fund that assures me that even if there is a market crash, I will have my money back or most of my money back. Those are two criteria, completely different criteria, and depend on the topology. And I'm saying when you have fear, when there is fear present, when there is catastrophes, rare events with enormous consequences, you tend to use the topology of fear to determine what's close to each other. And that leads you to make decisions which are considered to be irrational by the standard decision theory, namely, no, I'm not going to invest in the investment fund that gives me the higher expected returns. Why? What's wrong with you? Are you going to be rational? No, I'm not. I'm afraid. I will give a lot of weight to what happens in that fund in the case of a market crash. And I will not optimize according to the, what is the expected return alone? I will not do that. That's not irrational. According to the standard theory, it turns to be irrational. It cannot be explained. So by introducing the topology of fear, you can explain a different form of rationality. And then it leads to the following criteria. That is, OK, I'm going to invest in the fund that gives me the highest expected return, provided that the worst that can happen in the case of a catastrophe I'm willing to accept it. It's like, maybe I will lose 5% of my portfolio, but no more. 
Now, this sounds like a reasonable thing to do, particularly these days, with the economy being what it is. But it's contradictory to what we think is a rational decision making. And it leads people in experiments to say, humans are irrational. You just don't make decisions by what you expect that will happen. The expectation part is really averaging things. The consideration of the catastrophe and the extremal is looking at the worst that can happen, and it is using the topology of fear. This turns out to be mathematically connected with uh, Gödel's theory of the incompleteness of mathematics and with the resolution that Bertrand Russell gave to some of the biggest contradictions that appear in a system that has the richness of mathematics. But without going into details, I wanted to explain that going way beyond the issue of the fund that I mentioned, but it's nice because it's uh, an everyday phenomenon that we're not afraid of. How do we make decisions about jumping into a, uh, an accident and trying to pull a person out? And we are governed by fear. Well, under those conditions, we need to expand our notion of what rational means. And what the topology of fear does, it gives you a mathematical tool, a measurement tool, an experimental tool to define rationality in a way that admits certain ambiguities and allows you to cope both with the extremals that you behave with when you are involved in a, in a situation that has a catastrophe or can cause fear. And at the same time, the average behavior that you consider when you are being uh, you know, naturally uh, weighing the probabilities of what can happen. The two things emerge. So the result of that paper is that when you consider fear and when extremals do matter and you use a topology of fear, which is your value system, the topology is your value system, is what matters, what's similar to what, then you will end up behaving like that. You will choose the electric network for our city so that it maximizes the throughput of electricity but minimizing the worst that can happen in the case of a blackout. Does it sound reasonable? Yes. It is inconsistent with the way we view rationality until now through averages. So what I just said is reasonable but our notions of rationality until now have eliminated it as if it was irrational. I can give more and more examples. So uh, instead of doing that, I wanted to say that that gives you a use for mathematics that really opens up a completely different sphere. And uh, we will hear maybe more about that from Linda, but I was told before by David that the French are not uh, adverse to using topology when they try to study the uh, internal uh, psychological behavior, in, she's going to explain that of, uh, in their own, in how people make decisions. So I think I, with your permission, I will stop here because I am more interested in what these people have to say than what I have to say. I hope it's an introduction, it's the beginning. And uh, right, maybe you can pitch in. Is that sufficient, Paul? Yeah, that was good. That's good. I have a comment. Um, so you, you've tried to um, take a, an everyday word like rationality and turn it into more of a scientific mathematical 
concept. Is that correct? No. <laughs> I mean. No, no, go ahead. No, this might. Uh, no, uh, I think it's a very good point. I have to say that uh, Joe's work is fantastic. So, uh, you know, it's my pleasure to be answering your question. Um, no, what I do is something different. I look at the definition of rationality that we use in just about every scientific discipline I know. And it has to do, generally speaking, uh, with having some axioms and deriving from those axioms logically statements that we are willing to accept because we accept the axioms. That's the way mathematics is constructed. I just described to you what mathematics is. I also described to you what is decision theory, what is probability theory. We start with axioms, and then anything that we're willing to accept as rational is what derives from the axioms in a logical system that we accept. That's the way science proceeds. I didn't say it should proceed, I said proceeds. So the rationality that I speak about is not a loose word that we use at breakfast. Maybe it should be, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about scientific rationality. I'm talking about the fact that quantum probability, quantum theory has axioms that were defined by von Neumann in 1932. From those axioms, logically speaking, you derive the entire you know, quantum theory. And Everything can be drawn back in a logical steps, mathematical steps, to the axioms. That's rationality. So what have I done here? How am I redefining rationality? Am I changing the logic? No. What am I doing? I'm changing the axioms. OK, but it's a scientific view of rationality. But you started asking me if it was a, 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 a loose way of understanding rationality. I, I was more interested in the scientific part. So you yes. have a scientific uh, yeah. part. Yes. Um, but you, uh, on the other side, you took fear and used the everyday version of it. So you didn't have a scientific approach to fear. You had a, uh, an everyday version of fear. Well, yes and no, uh, in the sense that after I changed the axioms and I said, golly, when you have catastrophic events, rare events that are terrible, you need to use the topology of fear. Different axiom, different results, different rationality. And he says, OK, but with respect to fear, you're still woozy-woozy. You're not giving me the scientific version. Right. And he's right. I don't know what fear <laughs> is. What I do know is that I have carried experiments in which people are subject to uh, propositions that inspire extreme fear to see whether they behave according to the axioms and the logic from those axioms using the topology of fear will imply. And the answer is yes so far, because you can never prove anything with experiments. You can only prove that you don't know that you have made a mistake yet. But if you don't so define I fear, you can't scientifically use it. No, what I do is I define uh, the topology of fear as a topology that takes into consideration as a value, focuses on extremals, right. the worst that can happen. And uh, that topology then gives rise through to a different axiom, through logics, to different behavioral patterns. I check them. I tested them experimentally in, with a team in France. But this is baby stuff compared to yours. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think the, the I have a problem with fear myself, so. Um, oh, you're afraid? 
<laughs> of snakes, yes, but that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is, I'm afraid, of what we've been calling fear for um, hundreds or maybe thousands of years. And I've gotten really hung up on the question of how everyday language relates to the scientific language, especially in emotion and fear, because I think we've made a lot of mistakes. And in my own work, I've, um, I've made mistakes as well. So I've um, studied how rats detect and respond to threats for 30 years and have called the brain systems that we've identified the fear system. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, so I'm publicly announcing my, uh, <laughs> my errors here. I think and you should still buy his book, though. Buy the next one, uh, where I explain this. Uh, Which book? You can give us a title? It's called Anxious. Anxious. So, um, but it's, it'll be a while yet. Uh, I'm still working on it. So anyway, so the, um, by studying the way the brain detects and responds to danger, we've, we've identified circuits that are very important in ultimately in fear. Um, but they're not fear circuits. And for many years when I, I've been introduced to give lectures, I've been introduced to someone who's discovered X, Y, and Z about how we feel fear. And nothing could be further than the truth. So I'm trying to backtrack a bit and look at what we mean by fear. And um, I'd like to just describe you know, how you go about the science of doing something like this. Take a couple of minutes to do that. So in, in, you know, if we're studying the psychology and its relation to the brain, psychology of fear and its relation to the brain, we have to first define, uh, identify the everyday experience we, that we're interested in. That's basically what we do in psychology. Paul is interested in reward, so that's an everyday concept, and he turns that into some kind of scientific approach. So you first define what you're interested in, fear, and you say, well, fear is an emotion. And it's different from uh, other things that we call mental states, like cognitions or thoughts. Uh, and it's different from other emotions, uh, like sadness and anger and um, uh, empathy and so forth. Um, it's, it's closer to anxiety. Maybe that's kind of a topological uh, relationship in some sense. And in fact, I think mostly what you were talking about is anxiety rather than fear, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, the, um, so you've identified the, you've defined the thing that you're interested in, and then you figure out some experimental way to study some aspect of that. So uh, I've done that by studying the way the brain detects and responds to danger. Now, when you do the, the experiment, your goal is not only to study the little thing that you're, uh, that you're modeling, but also the bigger thing that you want to make, you want to gain some clarity on the bigger picture that you started out with fear. Uh, and so these two processes of defining and researching often go hand in hand. So over the last 150 years or so, when, as fear has been studied in various ways, uh, it's gone through a lot of transformations. The first approach has been to start with the everyday experience. Darwin talked about uh, fear as a, um, uh, a state of mind that's evolved. Um, Freud talked about fear and as a, a conscious experience that might be turned into an unconscious or repressed uh, uh, state. Uh, William James talked about it. And then the behaviorists came along and said, well, f this, all this talk about consciousness is getting in the way of doing research, so <laughs> let's talk about fear as a disposition to act in a certain way. Um, and the, um, then, then a little bit later, that was turned into uh, something called an intervening variable. So the behaviors talked about observable events like stimuli and responses. Um, a behaviorist um, um, uh, called Tolman introduced the intervening variable, which is 
something that sits between the stimulus and the response but has no psychological or biological reality. So fear in that sense was a, a concept that relates an external event with an, with an observable response. It wasn't a real thing. It wasn't a fear in the sense of a psychological experience. It was just an, a variable that explains how certain stimuli give rise to responses. The next step was these got turned into hypothetical constructs. So the uh, hypothetical construct of fear was a, what the, the main idea was as a drive. So it was a drive that when reduced, uh, eliminated the, the uh, aversive state that you're experiencing. And then this became turned into a biological entity, certain kinds of states of the brain. Now the original uh, ideas that were coming along when people were talking about brain states of fear uh, were in something called the conceptual nervous system uh, because they didn't know enough about the details of the brain to talk about the real nervous system. Uh, so again, it was all hypothetical. It wasn't a real thing. But then finally, um, research on brain circuits came along and we were able to identify circuits of fear. Um, and now that those circuits have, have come along to explain how the brain detects and responds to danger, something else has happened. Those circuits, you know, all of this effort has been to not talk about, the, not talk about fear as a psychological state because we're studying animals and we wanted to be able to understand how the stimulus produces the response without having to assume anything about the psychology of, of what that animal might be experiencing. But then once you have the circuit, the circuit starts to be psychologicalized into a fear circuit. So that circuit is also generating the feeling of fear which people who are studying those circuits never really say. So all of this is a long way of saying we have a lot of problems in starting with a psychological concept like fear and getting back to how the brain is working, but then coming back to understanding the psychological concept. And I think there's a way to do that. What we have to do is first distinguish what is that psychological concept from what are the underlying things? And I'll, I'll just wrap up by saying that every organism, whether it's a bacterial cell or a human, has to be able to detect and respond to danger. It doesn't need to feel fear to do that. Even in a human brain, uh, the brain can detect and respond to danger without knowing the stimulus is there and without having any experience at all. So what the, what the organism is doing, whether it's a bacteria or a human, is detecting and responding to a threat. And somewhere in the course of evolution, when the brain acquires the capacity to be consciously aware of its own activities, you have the feeling of fear that comes along, or the feeling of anxiety or love or whatever else. So um, I think we have to distinguish the feelings. I think the, you know, that the everyday language is the way we should think about uh, states like fear and anxiety and love and so forth. Uh, and that the scientific way of thinking about these things has to explain where that comes from, but without assuming that it's the same thing as the scientific stuff that we're studying. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but that's... This is fascinating. One thing I wanted to say is that as we start a new geological period on planet Earth, the, the anthroposphere, uh, in which humans are dominating the planet, the notion of fear, or rather, as he points out, the threats. He's saying, just let's talk about threats, okay? We are not clear what we mean by fear, or do we need to have an emotion? But the response to threat is what we're talking about. Well, so we do have fear. We experience it. But that's not what the brain 
the, br the brain circuits that, that detect threats do not exist in the brain to make you feel afraid. They make you, they're in the brain to allow you to detect threats. So let's back off and say instead of uh, fear, let's talk about the response to threats. And then I'm saying what he used the key word, evolution. It turns out that the brain is like an automobile that has pieces of all sorts of primitive material like bicycles and monocycles and all, until it gets to a modern automobile. We have all these pieces. And they're loosely connected with each other in some way or another that we somehow understand. But the point that he's making is if we made it so far, it's because somehow we relate, we, we reacted to threats. And what I'm saying is and we are in a position now where emotions may be evolving as the threats are evolving. Because in the, anthrop in the Anthropocene, this new geological period that started in 1945, we are facing totally different threats. So the response to threat, which is what he says, is the only thing I can be clear about, which is what the brain is doing, is now something that is evolving because the threats are completely different. We used to be afraid of our survival uh, in, in nature, as other animals were our predators. Well, it is nature who has to be afraid of us now. So we have other fears, the fears of what we ourselves may be going to do. So this evolution of emotions is, you know, I think leading a lot of people to think, well, are emotions reasonable, good, should they orient our actions or not? And to the extent that the response to threat is an emotion, and I don't even know if it is an emotion. It's not. I would say no. There it is. Fantastic. Well, let, let's get the other people in the discussion. Yes. Paul, what do you think? Oh, I, I hate to have to jump in right there. Gretel, I'm struggling a little bit with understanding the relationship to the topology. And um, I mean, I, I heard what Joe said very clearly, which is maybe we aren't talking about fear. Maybe we're talking about the way organisms respond to threats. Um, and I understand when I put on my hat as an economist, being both an economist and a neuroscientist, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the classical economist definition of rationality, that people are consistent, that they follow some set of rules, or maybe even an economist would say a human behavior is maximizing something, that we have goals that we proceed towards. These are all alternative ways to, to say the word rationality. So it seems to me the classic story is if I'm afraid, my behavior is discontinuous across this boundary where I become afraid. And my behavior stops being rational and goal-directed and progression and consistent and becomes something else, disordered, dysfunctional. And it seems to me that the core of the argument here is that you found a way to say, well, maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe this is one thing. And I, I was wondering if you could elaborate for me a little bit more, for all of us a little bit more, about topology and how it does that, how it takes a discontinuous, disordered, behavior and reveals it not to be discontinuous, disordered, or unproductive. Um, I did not introduce Paul, so I didn't, nor did I introduce anybody else, so I didn't tell you how great these people are. But you probably understand already how they are clarifying things and cutting things down to size. Okay, Paul, yes. The rationality is defined from axioms with logical deductions. I'm saying if I change the axioms, 
and I skip the rationality scheme, which is using a logical deduction, I will get to explain actions that were considered to be discontinuous and irrational before. And you are asking me, explain how. Well, or, or give us an intuition for topology's role in that. Linda, you want to? Maybe I can say something. So what topology is all about is, in some ways, defining what continuity is about. Uh, because when you say something is continuous, you want to say that uh, if I move, if I don't move too far, and I'm measuring something that's happening out there, it's not moving too far. Or I'm looking at my results, and if these results are close together, the what people do, what the, whether it's an economic model, whether it's a biological model, whether it's a physical model, if I move a little bit. That came from stimuli that were close together. And that is what continuity really means. And to say that it's discontinuous says that, well, if I have nearby things here, the events that they create can be very far apart. So you come down to the idea of what's nearby. And so how do you, so if you want to, if you change the topology about saying, what are your nearby things, you can turn what seems in this model to be discontinuous because those things that you start close, they got far apart here when you're measuring them this way. But when you change the topology, you change what's nearby here, they become closer together. So that, um, and in Graciela's example about weather, for example, uh, if you just say things are nearby, if they have nearby averages, then you're going to have bis big discontinuities. If you say, okay, when are things nearby? They're nearby if the average temperature over the year is nearby, and their extremes are also close together. Things are different if they have very different extremes. Well, then you have a different model. And what's continuous in one model can be discontinuous in another model. And so there, I think that it's very, this idea of saying topology and fear, you're taking different kinds of words that we're all used to using in different contexts. I mean, this is part of what you were saying. How do we use these words? And I think that if you want, if you're trying to set up some kind of model that you can work with, you do have to make these words have definite meanings in the context that you're talking about. So fear, when we talk about the topology of fear, we're talking about certain ways of measuring things. If we change the ways of measuring things, then maybe different things are closer together or not. But um, it's very hard to take a very amorphous concept of fear, talking about it this way, and then here's your model. And so you, know, you want to make the model that kind of reflects the things that you really are interested in. I mean, that's what people do when they try to set up mathematical models. You try to find the things that you're really interested in and use those as the building blocks for your model and build those into your axiom system so that you get out things that you can predict from. Otherwise, why do you want a model? 
So Paul, I'm, does that me, clarify it for you? It helps a little. Let me bounce it back and you tell Is me this, if, I, if I got enough to really grab onto that. I mean, when I hear you say continuity, I'm, I'm, the three of us are probably all immediately thinking about the mathematical term oh. continuity, and, and it may have slightly different meanings to different people in the room. But what I hear you saying is, if we look at a change in the environment and a change in behavior, mm -hmm. we say, oh, look, you know, the environment's getting a little bit riskier, and people are getting, changing their behavior a little bit, change it a little more, mm -hmm. they change it a little more, change it a little bit more, they change. Suddenly, you make a little change, and they, the behavior looks completely different. So to, I think to me as an economist and neuroscientist, that's discon discontinuous, right? Yeah, oh, sure. And, and sure. so I had this problem, which was that the thing I was manipulating, the risk, looked continuous to me, and the behavior looked discontinuous to me, which left me kind of like, oh, well, that's not good. And I'm hearing you say that the critical idea here is, oh, well, when you see discontinuous behavior that doesn't line up with what you think is a continuous state of the outside world, maybe you're looking at the outside world wrong. Maybe there, there's a lens that makes the outside world either look discontinuous or flip the other way, makes the behavior look continuous. Right. Yeah, in fact, uh, to be very specific, you, as I said, by using different topology, you are using different values. So something that you, in the example I gave before, your value is, on average, you want to be as well as you can when you invest your money. That's the way you value your investment, an investment uh, approach. But then, all of a sudden, there is a small probability that this year there will be a market crash. Under the average response, mm -hmm. which is what he was saying, and you were saying, you will just, you know, neglect the market crash. You will deny the market crash. And you will dive into the market crash, which is what happens to us. So you're not looking at the worst that can happen. That would not be your behavior if you're using the normal topology. Under the topology of fear, it doesn't matter to you how small is the probability of the event. If it is bad enough, you're going to focus on it really hard. And then through these results, I give a complete characterization that tells you how the human behavior, irrational human behavior, incorporates the two parts incorporates, I want to be on average as well as I can, so I like the temperature to be on average 70 degrees, but I'm going to also mind if there is a jump of 100 degrees from one day to the next, I can't deal with it. So I'm going to look at those two things, and that leaves you to totally different behavior and not to look at the average temperature. If you don't look at the average temperature, you look irrational according to that criterion. Mm -hmm. And it goes, you know, it, it, this can be made very, very, uh, uh, very, very precise, mathematically as precise as you want. So in the case of a market crash, we might have avoided the market crash if the people in Wall Street, instead of using the economics of averages, which is the standard von Neumann theory, they would have used the economics of reacting to a threat, which is what I call the topology of fear, and that leads to a decision criterion or function in which the worst that can happen all of a sudden may pop up, whoa, we can go into a crash. 
Whoa, stop, break, change behavior. Is that discontinuous? Well, it would be if you're just looking at averages. But if you're looking at the worst that can happen, it wouldn't be discontinuous. So the notion of rationality, which is tied up with continuity, as Linda says, depends on how you measure things, what your values are, what you, what you observe, what you care for. Does it make sense? Yeah. David, yeah. why don't you? Well, I mean, there's a great deal that's been said already that uh, in terms of psychoanalysis raises a number of interesting questions. But just this last point about continuity and discontinuity and about flipping the topology of the uh, response so as to find a continuity where it appears that there's a discontinuity is a position that one experiences as a psychoanalyst all the time. That is, one of the things that takes place in listening very closely to the discourse of a patient is, link, is one hears or finds links, proximities, continuities, where it appears there are discontinuities in the content that's being talked about. Um, there are also, for example, things which may seem highly unrelated on the face of them, on the surface. Uh, through further discourse, you begin to see how they are, in fact, linked. So you, you find unexpected uh, uh, continuities, unexpected proximities right, on the level of meaning. For example? <laughs> a person is talking. If you associate a little bit, he will show you. Exactly. <laughs> if you free associate, he'll give you an example. We're already using the couch, but uh, <laughs> people are uh, speaking about one topic in what appears to be uh, a clear, rational uh, uh, depiction of some story, and suddenly they have a thought. And they say, I don't know where this comes from. It's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Right? But under the structure of a psychoanalytic treatment, which is that you say whatever comes into your mind, they say this thought that's random, that seems completely unconnected. Uh, as they speak about it, and it happens, this is a daily event. This is not an unusual event in psychoanalytic work at all. As they speak about it, of two or three minutes into saying, of course I see why I thought about this. It happens to us all, all the time. We have an association which seems entirely discontinuous, and we discover the continuity, right? I mean, how do you know it's a real continuity as opposed to one that's interpreted? Without any interpretation, now, the question there, of course, is what do you mean by real continuity? I don't mean that as a question. It's more about how this gets back to the science. And the well, the way it gets back and, and, uh, is that it has to do with the, the level of analysis. You know, each of us work in a different framework of analysis. Right? Uh, uh, what's of interest to the psychoanalyst is subjective reality, right. is subjective experience, is not just the description, but the articulation of subjective experience, putting it into language, conveying it to another person. So the continuity is real by virtue of the subjective experience. What its reality is in terms of other criteria is another question. So right. in my field, we have something called memory reconsolidation, where you take a memory out, as, as you do in psychoanalysis, examine it, and 
Um, what we and others have found is that when memories are, are taken out in this way and made, in, in a, made active, they go to a, a period of vulnerability where they can be changed and then restored, and the new reality becomes what's restored rather than what the original reality was. Can you explain that? Um, so the, a common example is someone witnesses a crime and gives a, a report to the police on the day of the crime. And then uh, they go to court to testify. And rather than talk about the details they gave the police, they come up with details that were in a newspaper article that they read in the meantime. So reading that article reactivated the memory, caused new information to be stored, and then that becomes the reality that they carry forth as the next memory. So the, you know, the, the extreme version of this is your memory is only as good as your last memory. And, and that's, that is an extreme version, but there's some truth to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have to say something directly related to that uh, and to what Paul was saying. Mathematically, when you have, when you have, the, the foundation of how we observe reality is probability and statistics. That's how we observe things. We measure things and we take statistics, okay? That's, we look at statistics of what, you don't see one object, you, you look at statistics of it. Now, these same axioms of uh, using the extremal events lead to a different probability and statistics, which, when you look at the stochastic processes that they generate, when you have a, a probability function and you pull out, uh, you pull balls from an urn that has a different distribution, then you plot how many were red, how many were black, etc. That gives you a stochastic process. That's what it's called. And the prices of the stock in Wall Street also are a stochastic process. The observations of particles in the universe are also a stochastic process, etc. Well, if you take these axioms and you put the topology of fear and derive the stochastic processes that occur, they are not random walks and they are not small diffusion processes. They are diffusion processes with jumps. That's a theorem. Now, what you are saying, and what you are saying, is you observe a person talking about an event and all of a sudden they make a jump, which is discontinuous which you say, unrelated. Well, there is a theorem coming from these axioms that says that's the way it is. There will be market crashes, there will be discontinuities on the psychoanalytic chair, and they will, the discontinuities are the rule, not the exception. But they are not really discontinuities when you take into account the value system or the topology of fear that is underlying this form of rationality. They are what you expect to be. In fact, you prove they are going to be jump diffusion processes. That's why the mass in the universe is not uniformly distributed. That's why you have stars. So you have nothing for a while and then you have you know, jumps in mass. That's why people in the couch all of a sudden come up with something strange. But could you predict what a patient is going to come up with? You can predict the frequency in which they will occur. You can predict uh, the form that these probability distributions take, and then you can carry experiments about it. And 
and that gives rise to a new form of probability and statistics, and it reproduces what, what happens, for example, with earthquakes. But earthquakes. I just want to add a dimension to that, uh, and, and in so doing, bring it back to the question of emotion and to the question of fear and threat, because uh, that, your argument, I think, is that fear introduces a particular form of discontinuity, uh, which can be uh, accounted for by a topological structure which will match the values of that new form of discontinuity. What I'd like to uh, I suggest- I the opposite, that the discontinuities are only apparent. Yeah. So oh, if-, well, if Can you explain that? I thought you should. Well, you know, it seems to me, though, that there, there is something about, you know, you, it's not clear that fear, is, I mean, it, it works maybe in this context, but there are a lot of situations. People are building now these huge supercomputers, and they've got thousands of computers that they put together, and they and the as these things go, they generate heat. You know they're going to generate heat. So you know that this one is going to fail, and you have to program them in such a way that when this one fails, this one is taking over. And so that people, when you're looking at the output, it all looks very continuous, because you don't see that this one stopped and that one started. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there was this jump. Now this is, and all of this, has nothing to do with the emotions. This is because people have thought about, well, how are you going to deal with situations where you know something's going to get hot? You don't know which one's going to get hot. You don't know when you have some sense of mean time to failure, but you try to build this in to the system. And so, but this is not an emotionally charged situation where you're dealing with some kinds of discontinuities. And so you try to create models where you think this is going to work. And in that sense, you create topologies which are measuring what's going on. And there is something similar to that in terms of your saying you have a topology, you want to create a topology that takes these, what seem to be rationalities when we put it in the context of the market. Uh, as discontinuities and make them into a situation where you, you can know what to expect so that you know you know how to react to them, you know that the market, that you can make a situation where you're in good shape. So the so is using the word fear throwing in an emotional charge into the discussion and that's a and you agree with him because he's well, saying I'm, I'm, I just you know I just he's saying it's not really fear it's like the, there is a systematic way in which we respond to threat and we better know how to do that because otherwise we wouldn't be here and that's what it is and you may or not feel fear right, right. and so there is no role for the emotion no the, once once you've detected a threat and it invades your consciousness then it's a whole new game. Then that's when fear is there and uh, begins to act back on the, the whole system. 
uh, and everything changes. I, I work in the first 15 milliseconds of a stimulus. So that's what I'm trying to understand. But you know, by the time that you have the, uh, the awareness of something, obviously it's a whole new ballgame. So you are saying the reaction to threat in the first few milliseconds is what it is. No fear, no emotion. It's just a reaction to threat. And then eventually the brain picks up, oops, it realizes what's happening. It's observing itself. And then it feels fear. Right. There's another step, though. So the the brain first detects, first we react to danger. So you're walking along, there's a snake on the ground, you stop, and then you realize there's a snake, right? Because your brain has detected it. Or you're walking down the street, you jump back, and the bus goes flying by. So you're able to. Who's flying by? The bus. The bus. So, or a car, whatever, a taxi. So your brain is able to identify these, um, these stimuli that are potentially dangerous uh, and, and allow you to react in hardwired, pre programmed ways. Now, once that's happened, that changes the state of the brain so that you become more sensitive to threatening stimuli. Uh, you, you have goal-directed behaviors that begin to be called upon through past learning and, uh, and so forth that allow you to then uh, perform instrumental or willful behaviors that help you cope with the situation, not necessarily consciously. But then at the same time, you're beginning to become consciously aware of everything, and then that will also impact as well. So we can think of like three levels here. And then once you're conscious of it, then it's a whole other ball game where you know, you're consciously pl planning things. And you may say that that's a complete artifact as well. There could be uh, um, a topology going on that's making predictions about what the next step is going to be. And consciousness is a total epiphenomenon. I don't think that's true. But we certainly don't understand what consciousness is and, and how it works. One question. Are emotions good or bad? They're both. So how do we know whether we should yield to our emotions or not? Well, first of all, you can't. I'm just asking you a simple question. <laughs> I mean, you, in terms of your reaction, you can't stop that. I mean, first you're going to react, and then you may, you know, you may short circuit it, but it starts, uh, and then that's what, what will determine whether you continue to respond or not. Uh, and you may not even be able to stop it. But if we develop emotions as part of this process of coping and observing, etc., and rationalizing what happens when we reacted to threat, and now in the Anthropocene, threats have changed, are our emotions changing? Different threats, different emotions? It depends on what you mean by emotions. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's all about defining what the terms are. Uh, I think the, you know, I think David was in the middle of something when we got off track, so maybe we should go back to that. Well. It, it relates to your question, and, and it's to introduce another uh, term in the question of decision-making, and that is the, the notion of desire, uh, because it seems to me relevant that in making a decision, the subject is not simply engaging in a rational calculation of advantage and disadvantage. Uh, the subject also experiences something about uh, a, a fantasy, a wish, an, I an idea of what the consequence of success will be. Um, as part of subjective life, one th continuity, one proximity that is very striking is that very close to the experience of desire, is the experience of threat. Say that again? Very close to the experience of desire 
is the experience of threat. What does that mean? It defines clothes. Well, I'm, I'm using the topological. I'm using the topological idea. That is. That is. Whereas we might think that nothing could be more discontinuous or further apart, uh, as for example, someone speaks about uh, a wish that they have, and they begin to articulate the nature of that wish, a wish for some outcome, some behavior, some activity to take place. As they articulate more and more about that wish, including unexpected elaborations about that wish, what often takes place is an experience of some kind of inhibition, something stopping them. They stop, I can't go on, I can't really say more about this. To talk about what you want, to talk about your desire freely is a very difficult thing to do. Something takes place, something related to what I think Joe is talking about as, as a threat, response to threat, pre-conscious. The, right? the desire is a response to threat? No, no. In talking about desire, in articulating desire, we observe a response to threat in the form of, a, of, a, of some kind of an inhibition, some kind of a stopping, some kind of a difficulty, right? David, on. are you saying anything more than if you want to put $10,000 in Graciela's fund and you think Graciela is going to give you $3,000 more by the end of the year, so you'll have 13000 so your desire is to change your 10000 into 13000 then you have the idea, what if Graciela doesn't succeed and I lose my money? Is that what you mean by desire and no. threat? No, because that, that, I mean, that, that's a very rational, you know what you're worried about there. Well, no, I'm talking about the more, and it's a garden variety, I think we all experience it. You think, uh, I have a good chance of doubling my money in this investment. But there's something about that that, that bothers me. There's something, I, you know what, I'm not, I, I'm not sure I can actually uh, bring myself to act on that knowledge. Uh, it's an inhibition. Uh, why do people get in their own way? Why do uh, what I would suggest is this happens constantly. This happens in daily life. This isn't a rare event under extreme conditions. So this you're is afraid kind of, of what you want? I think people are generally afraid of what they want. Now, in post-traumatic stress disorder, isn't it, doesn't it come up in some cases where you associate something that you want very much with something which is a tremendous threat to you? Like what? I mean, what do you mean? Well, let's look at the case of uh, um, domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So mm, you are in love with this man, and one day he try to kill you. And then out of that, you have this association. You love this person. There is all this warmth and these wonderful feelings. But then, all of a sudden, you relate that with the worst possible experience, which is that your life may be at stake in a horrible way. So and you're, that you're, brings describing, to, you're describing the person's subjective conscious experience. But underneath that are going to be approach and avoidance tendencies that have been conditioned by those experiences. 
So there may be some, uh, you know, some very good times that created um, positive relationships, stimuli associated with that person that are attractive and appealing, but also the very negative things that are going to be pulling you in the other direction. So these are, these are the kinds of things that are going to be triggering these implicit unconscious processes every time you encounter that person. Uh, and you know which one wins? Probably the aversive is is uh, is going to win in every situation because. But, but Joe, the what you were saying seems to me would make sense if uh, the example wasn't Graziella's example because Graziella's example is that your actual life is being threatened. It's not that. You say, you know, he's a nice guy because he buys me nice right. presents, but whenever he comes home for dinner, he starts yelling and screaming. That's a, when you were talking about an extreme example, like she's talking about how would you justify remaining with somebody who actually is threatening your life? And he's saying that would be natural because what you most desire is also what you're most afraid of. Uh, not really saying that. No? I wouldn't put it that simply in, in, in the sense that it's in all cases. All I'm saying is that there is an unexpected proximity in the sense that uh, you were talking about it topologically. There's an unexpected proximity between threat and desire. Unexpected by what we might think of as a, an ordinary topology, but the, the topology that a, that a psychoanalyst comes to work with is the expected proximity of threat and desire. I can give you a research example that I think helps to address this question. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Regina Sullivan, uh, has studied rat pups. And at a very early age, while the pups are still uh, nursing. Um, pups? What's pups? Pups. Baby pups. Oh, baby pups. Baby rats okay. nursing with the mother. Um, a stimulus that's associated with the mother, but uh, is also connected to, to a painful experience in the pup, uh, the, the, uh, the pup will treat that stimulus as a positive stimulus. So it's as if you know, the mother may be abusive, but the pup is dependent on the, on the mother, so the connections formed are still in the positive approach uh, vein. But as soon as the, the pup stops uh, nursing, um, the, those same stimuli now become aversive, and the pup will avoid those under any circumstance. Now, that, okay, that's fine. But then in the adult, you can bring back this infant uh, attraction by stress. So raising cortisol levels in the adult rat will bring back the infantile pattern of approaching the dangerous, harmful stimulus. So to the extent that PTSD is often something that um, uh, a person doesn't just develop PTSD after one stress in life, often it's something where one has been traumatized as a child, uh, and then that sensitizes the brain to, to later stress. Uh, you can imagine how this same kind of mechanism would kick in. Wow. So essentially what he's saying is that masochism is cortisol. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the topology actually is uh, it's actually doing a lot of work for us here because it's telling us, again, values in some cases, what you really care for, but also, in reality, what things are close to which. I mean, it's very, it's, uh, I mean, I, 
there is no question that it really depends on the topology we use depends on the, w the way we are wired, but also our culture. Uh, certain things in our culture are considered to be similar, and that topology, that proximity is completely um, uh, hardwired. I mean, there is no particular reason for it. Uh, I was going to give examples, but I don't want to create anything to uh, difficult to comprehend, but what you're saying is very interesting for that. I mean, the, I think was agreeing with what you said about desire and... Uh, well, so, so, what, you, so what, what I was taking out of that was that we can put a topology on emotions that are measure two, two emotions are close together if they both make you feel relatively good or if they both make you feel relatively bad and we sort of tend to think of um, being happy is on the way to being ecstatic which is sort of closer than being in great fear or uh, being terribly sad and I think what you're saying is that often if you change your idea of what the topology is and you say we put emotions together it would say that they're close if they occur at the same time or in close you know if you see within a given individual these emotions occurring simultaneously then maybe that's when you say these should be close so that's a different topology that you can put on emotions saying that these are these are close together because they occur often together as said. opposed to having that they're far apart because they have uh, a, you know they, they seem far apart about what they make people feel I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Paul was the, did you get a response to the question you had? I think so I mean I, I understand a little bit more this notion of what you mean by topologically consistent and I mean I think the discussion here has really focused on how emotions are topologically consistent, how they, that might align with the topology of fear and the topology of efficient decision making. I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure how these two sets of ideas, the one psychological about topology and the other economic, basically, about topology, exactly align. And about, I see Joe chafing constantly at the border between those two ideas. But, but what about... Um reward prediction error, which is something you study. I mean, that's a discontinuity. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Yikes. <laughs> no? You don't want to go there? No, I don't want to go there. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> but if you have a, something that's being predicted and that prediction is not coming true, and that's triggering... Yeah, but we view, I mean, I have to say, I view that as a very continuous process because I'm thinking, well, I'm expecting to find a full glass of water, and I find only half a glass of water, so I'm surprised negatively by half. I mean, these are you know little things that you learn from. Don't expect whatever an overfull glass of water. About? But I, I don't I don't see this as discontinuous at all. I mean, those map in normal topologies. Those are just straight linear spaces. I, I mean, I don't want to descend into mathematics here, but uh, I, I think this is something really different. Well, I have a question about topology that maybe Linda can answer. The, the model that some psychoanalysts use to map the space where these unexpected continuities occur 
is, uh, it, it can be talked about in a variety of ways. One of them is the cross cap, the, project, the real projective plane, yeah. the self-intersecting plane, yeah. right? Um, does, uh, does that make sense to you as a topological model related to the questions that we're talking about uh, here? I guess for my, my sense thinking about that kind of model is uh, that what is special about it is that it's an example of something that is not orientable. So the simplest example of that is the Mobius strip, where you take a piece of paper like this, and then you want to glue the ends together, and you glue it like this. And the thing is that you can keep going around. It, it has only one side. Right. I think what you're saying more about this question of proximities that you don't expect to find is that you have a situation where you're looking at this global question of dealing with these emotions and trying to see how they fit together, and they're sitting, it's more like a surface that comes around and meets itself. It, it's not the question of orientability that is what characterizes cross-cap, but the idea that you have something that what we call in mathematics is immersed rather than embedded, that you have, you have a surface that comes around, it intersects itself, it comes out, and then it comes around, it might intersect itself again in some other kind of special place. So it's more this question of the fact that you have self-intersections and immersibility as opposed to embeddability in terms of the, the mathematical technical terms for it. Yeah, that is of great interest. Are, are those moments of intersection called singularities? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a very evocative term for a psychoanalyst. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, it's, if you, the simplest kind of thing is, you know, if you, if you take a, a curve that you draw on the plane that comes around and, and intersects itself on one point, well, you can write down equations for surfaces where the surface lives in a bigger space because there are more variables, but then they intersect. Uh, in a whole line or in bigger, in even bigger pieces. And sometimes it does it in a nice way and sometimes it does it in a very, not very nice way. And there are lots of theories to think about these various singularities and see how they come about. What you're saying also is that sometimes the opposites meet. And that's what you're saying with this type of emotions. I mean, the extreme desire and the extreme fear or feeling of threat meet. But the only thing I would say that somewhat differs from your position is that I find that this is, occurs all the time. I don't think it's a rare event. I think in decision making all the time, there are these uh, singularities, these conjunctions of opposites, these unexpected. I agree. Uh, all right. I, what I'm saying is that when looked at it from a conventional approach, you like this and you dislike a threat. 
okay? They're separate. And what you're saying is, no, don't expect them to be separate. Expect them to converge. And in mathematics, expect them to come together all the time. And they do. And I agree with that. And that leads to a totally different types of math type of mathematics. And you can predict different things. For example, believe it or not, you can predict some things that happen in quantum probability using this type of uh, mathematics that you couldn't predict otherwise. And, and it may be that we should be using more of those, because the quantum probability scheme that is also topological uh, connects with the issue of frameworks. And I don't understand why, since psychologists or understand that we think in frameworks, those two fields have not been closer together. Did I say something wrong? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I'd like to just go back to the, uh, the basic question of, of fear versus anxiety. Because I, I think most of the stuff you talked about in your example would uh, fall into the category of what scientists call anxiety more than fear. Um, the, the, so the typical scientific definition is fear is a state that occurs when there's an immediately present threat, so like the snake on the ground, whereas anxiety is one where you're anticipating uh, a threat. Now, by that definition, though, really almost everything that we call fear is anxiety because it's usually not, you know, the snake itself, but the what what you're what's you know there's nothing about the snake that's inherently dangerous. It's the you're worried that the snake is going to bite you. So all of that is uh, becomes anxiety. Um, now, one way to to look at these things is in terms of what's called uh, predatory imminence. Um, this is a theory that Michael Fanslow at UCLA has advanced. And he has a, a scale of uh, different degrees of temporal and spatial proximity that determine uh, how a, a rat is going to respond to a particular threat or any other organism. So if the uh, stimulus, if the threat is like immediately in front of you, uh, then you, ha you, you will freeze. If the threat's a little bit further away, um, you, you will freeze, but sort of be engaging in uh, what's called risk assessment, kind of head bobbing and moving back and forth. But when you're frozen, you're just dead solid, no movement at all. But if the threat is further away, you're kind of checking it out. If the threat is very far away, you might just run away, because that's uh, the best thing to do if, if you have uh, the opportunity to escape. Uh, and if it's really far away and is not even uh, visible, then you know, there's no response at all even though it may be potentially present. So an animal that is, um, is hungry, for example, is what? hungry, will have to overcome certain concerns. Every time he goes out of the, the nest and into the world, there's a chance, there's a probability that he's going to be eaten. But uh, he knows what's going on in his local area, so he's going to take that chance to go find something to eat. Uh, so there's no threat present, but he has to be vigilant just in case. But he's going to still perform the behaviors he needs to unless the threat is actually detected at some distance. And depending on how close it is, the, uh, uh, the, the way it will respond will be different. So it seems that maybe that's just too simple-minded in terms of topology, but it seems that there's a, a topological relationship between what the animal is going to do and uh, uh, what it expects and so forth. That is a very good example. Yeah. Okay, I think we can go to questions. Yeah, uh, I think there is a couple of questions here. They have to be questions. They don't have to be statements and long comments. Brief questions, please. 
Let me refer I did have a, <clears throat> a comment that was going to turn into a question, so let me rephrase it. Uh, I think Joseph mentioned, as Paul did later on, but you were very explicit, that one of the issues here is definition of terms. So I went, the question I have for Linda, I think, at first, um, in topological space, especially mathematical top, uh, topology, uh, the notion of continuity versus uh, a continuous versus discrete transformation is very, very precise. So I think the whole idea of discontinuity here was used in a context that strays from a strip topological uh, interpretation. So I wanted to ask you that. Uh, and I don't quite understand. Well, in that, um, if, one t if, the t if, if you're talking about, for example, the uh, transforming the topology uh, based on certain axioms into a second topology based on different axioms, yeah. if that's a continuous transformation, that's one thing. If they're separate type of topologies, it's something else. Yeah. So, well, right. so I think basically what she's defining is a separate. Okay, good. It, it, it's, not, it's, not that, it's not that you're making a continuous transformation from one topology to another. Yeah, 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 no. And then, the, the, since that's cleared up, the question I have for you specifically, yeah. would, if you uh, have looked into or think that looking into um, abelian Lie groups would have any traction in this context. Uh, and I bring, I bring that up because of its relationship to quantum mechanics, and that Lie groups have been shown to um, be very useful in probabilistic uh, interpretations of yeah. quantum events. Yeah, so I mean, actually, Graciela can probably answer that better than I can because she has worked with the mathematics of those models, so she would know better Thanks, whether you, you really, how you, how you use the abelian. Yeah, but they will kick me out of here if I start talking about it. <laughs> but yes, I mean, if you, everything that we're saying is very, very close to quantum probability. By that, um, among other things, you have different frameworks in which you look at things. Now, when you do have that and you transform one framework into another, that is a group of transformations that gives rise to either abelian or non-abelian groups. Oh, very good. Okay. So then I'll talk to you later about min, the relationship of min-max uh, to that statement as well. Oh, that I, I don't know. It's like Linda said, they are not connected. Okay, I mean, typically speaking, what you do there is you transform a, f a basis of coordinates into another, and you're not using min-max. No, uh, but in terms of the topological representation of the two different uh, state spaces, that's what I'm, but not now. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, I'd like to ask if you could define embedded versus immersed and okay. if there is a, an analogy in both psychoanalysis and in the work, Joe, that you do. This question only in New York City. Okay. I mean, it's an amazing question. Okay, okay. well, so it's, um, if I have a surface that's embedded, it will intersect itself. If I have, if I have a curve, I mean, it's easier to think about a curve that comes back and crosses itself. If it crosses, but I can think of it as a curve because it makes sense to follow it around, right? So when I follow it around like a shoelace and I go to tie it, that's where it crosses itself, if it fuses together. If 
it doesn't come together if it, it if when I follow it around, it never touches itself. It's embedded. Very simple. Okay. So your necklace is embedded. It doesn't come together. Actually, but yeah, I can. No, it doesn't. Yes. You're right. You're right. But is there an analogy? My question then was psychologists. Is there an analogy? Well, in the in the sense that when you start thinking about emotions that are close together in terms of, say, the way they make you feel, or and you start going through, moving through emotions that are close together, and then these are would somehow feel very far apart, but in terms of their occurrence within the space, they come together again, as in feeling good and then Feeling, feeling fearful, and so you've made this transition through these various different emotions, and you come together, and all of a sudden, there you are in the same place. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one other example. Uh, it has to do with the notion of transference in psychoanalysis. Transference? Transference, yeah. The, the notion of transference, it, to put it very simply, is that an event taking place can be simultaneously meaningful in two points of time. Two points of time, i.e. a memory and an, an encounter in the present, can be at that moment experienced as a simultaneous event. So there is exactly the kind of... Um, so you've gone from when it happened before through some period of time and now you experience it again and so it, it is in the... But it, it feels like... So you're in the same point from the point of event, but at a different point in time. Yeah, and that is transference in psychoanalysis, you know, defined topologically. So from the uh, neurobiological oh. point of view, that what you just described is the, uh, you know, when we, uh, scientifically we think of being able to attend or be conscious of a particular thing in our mind means that that information is in what's called working memory. So maybe you first had one state, one of these states in working memory or the other, but now they're both in working memory, so they're simultaneous. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of you know, so-called emotions, whether you can have two emotions at one time uh, in terms of the biological underpinnings of emotion uh, is, um, I don't think we, we know the answer, but you know, if we think of, um, for example, the what what these states do, let's say you're in a, a, say, a state that's been triggered by the presence of a threat, uh, it begins to monopolize your brain because it, it takes over, uh, causes, you know, this is a, a survival situation, so your brain is now in a state where everything has to be dedicated to survive the moment. So that's why it's monopolizing. So it would be hard for another state to take over at that point unless it had some greater priority. So let's flip things around. Let's say you're really hungry. So the, the, the uh, nutrition energy balance system has taken over your brain. But um, you um, uh, know that there's a predator right out there where you've got to go get your food. So you're not going to go out. You're going to stay hungry for a while. On the other hand, let's say you know the predator's there and you're still hungry and you're really hungry, you're on the point of starvation now, so you have to risk encountering the predator to get some food. 
So these are, uh, can be thought of as different points of monopolization that where the states are almost uh, discontinuous and switching back and forth uh, as needed uh, ah. on the momentary state. Okay. That's interesting. Frustrated by this idea of this this uh, model, this topology, which is, is trying to be imposed on something, and it doesn't fit. Or and well, it seems to me that I've been I was a computer programmer most of my life, and I understand programs that uh, I understand programs that. Uh, uh, you know, possibly predict uh, like which where you're going to put your money uh, if you're uh, evasive, uh, you, you want to avoid too much risk and something like that. You could put a, but it can't be just, it isn't something simple. It's something very, very complex. You would have a cases, well, case from, from this to age to this age or this, to, you would have write a, com, a very complicated program. And and the complicated program would have to follow the analysis and the input from the people who uh, were actually dealing with something real. It's sort of like a, a science following observation and then uh, people coming up with uh, this happens this time and this time and this time and then the theories are, uh, evolve and uh, when the, after the theories evolve something comes up that this that doesn't quite fit in so it's slightly modified you modify the program slightly to fit it in and to me that's what science is about it is I, I find it very frustrating to think of a topology uh, that uh, e that's very vague, and I don't know what any practical use for it, and and I don't see how it's going to work. You, if you have a programmer programming these decision tables, uh, interviewing every uh, analysis, uh, and you could, I could set up a, a, I believe I could set up certain questions that, that for a, a individual patient and every person would be different and they would have these different things that they would be afraid of and when they wouldn't then you they would become very predictable if you fit it into a program and then you could test it to see if, if it worked and when it didn't work you would have to modify it and but I don't understand uh, a an abstract philosophical uh, topology imposed somewhere or or where it isn't either uh, influenced by the underlying analysis and uh, or experiments that would uh, say prove that this analysis uh, theory was wrong. You have to start with the observation, observation of the rats or obse observations of or much more complex observations of human beings by uh, analysts. Uh, Getting uh, getting all this data, and then you come up with after the fact with a formula that would work. I can't see coming out starting with a formula and then uh, imposing well, yes. it from the outside. So let's, let's First of go. all, it's a fa fascinating comment, fascinating from your experience uh, to tell us that. Um, but let's look at the rat. Okay, yeah. so the question is. You want to predict what's going to happen to the rat, or he wants to predict what's going to happen to the rat when he grows up. So he's, he's 
I think what he's doing. Well, you want to predict? No, no. What your what, what Only your computer if he would observe those mode. same rats when they were grown up, observe many of them, see what happened to the ones who be, who uh, had this experience and the ones that didn't have that experience, and then you then you do that so, after the fact. What's your name? Betty. Betty. What topology is doing is telling you what to look at. What to look at? Yeah. What's important? Okay. And if you tell me that is a large philosophical theory that doesn't matter, that's not. What, the topology is telling you what, what matters. Is, is the average behavior of the mother or whether the mother at some point took a deep dive and did something that caused, caused a big impact on the young brain? What matters more? What you do on an everyday basis with a child or what you, do, what you did once? Well, and that's, that's extremal. So, in the same thing is true about the computer programming. Yes. You want to say you are going to feed data, and then you want to see if the data is within this neighborhood. I know this is going to be the result. Right. But suppose that you say no. What matters is what's the minimum of all the numbers you feed, and that's going to determine whether it's going to go this way or it's going to flip. And your computer program. So the question is, what are you is important? Are you testing for the correct thing? Is that yes? And therefore, that is very crucial. It's not oh, yes. philosophical, and that's what we're talking about by topology. I, by the way, I take the opportunity to say that I brought 15 copies of the article, the topology of fear. If you want to read them, they will would, be left I, on the I, table. I did not read it before, so no, no, I'm sorry. No, no, of course no, not, but right, I mean right. they're sitting there. So in some sense, it's really very fundamental because that's what science is looking for, yes. patterns. But What's I think psychologists, it seems to me that psychologists are doing that. They are coming up with tests. They're coming up with tests, it seems to me. that. That's, anyway, I don't, I'm not going to okay. <laughs> Thank you, Betty. But thank you, thank you. And I will read your article. Thank you. Why hasn't anybody mentioned uncertainty, which seems to me uh, the fundamental condition of the human condition, and which to link what the psychoanalyst said with what you were saying, you've got your financial decision that, need to meet the, that needs to be made, and at the same time, somebody has a desire. In both cases, what's really at issue is the uncertainty of the outcome that comes with our normal day in and day out living and decision making we have to make. So that what, what, what we're talking about, and it really is the response to threat as well, because what is the threat we're responding to? We're responding to the threat of uncertainty, because that's the way life is. We don't know what's happening from one, uh, one second to the other. Psychoanalytically, if somebody has a strong desire, it seems to me it's fairly natural to also have fear associated with it because it's uncertain. We don't know that it will come out. It's not a matter of the specific uh, desire that we fear. It's another aspect of it that we know the uncertainty that we may encounter in reaching uh, 
in having that desire satisfied. But again, what my basic point is what was missing in this whole discussion was nobody talking about uncertainty and the fact that in each and every case what you're really looking at is we're here now and we're either perceiving threat, perceiving concern, that's the future and that's where the uncertainty comes in. I let people answer it, but we're going to have a roundtable on uncertainty later in the year. Okay. Actually, everything we said was about uncertainty. Everything. From the, from the word go, when we started saying, well, you don't know what's going to happen with the market conditions. Are you going to invest to get the best possible expected return? That's uncertainty. Are you going to be afraid or, and focus on the market crash? Another form of uncertainty. The question is, how do you define uncertainty and what do you focus on? Are you focusing on the average uncertainty of the weather or are you focused on the maximum and the minimum? Well, you see, but, but this is where I, I get uh, my question it's all about regarding the, uh, the mathematical explanation and the, uh, the topography. And again, a couple of times you alluded to quantum mechanics, okay? And we know that quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle, and the idea of what you're trying to do is predict probabilities mathematically. But when we're talking about, I think, the topic of human uncertainty, we're talking, again, to go back to the subjective, the, the individual trying to make their own decision. And all I, all I can say at that point, I mean, it is so much more complicated, I think, <laughs> than what we've said. But you still got to look at it from the standpoint of the individual. And again, each one of us has to face our future, and we do it every minute of our lives. It's too bad Paul is not here, because that's exactly what he works on, the, the way the brain is a Bayesian statistical probability generator, and how our decisions are based on these probability estimates. And incidentally, what I wanted to talk with him about is the Bayesian decisions, or the Bayesian updating, which is that you have this belief, and then you get a new piece of information and you update your belief. That's what Bayesian uh, theory does. Well, how do you update your belief? Mathematically, you update it so that the new updated distribution that you adopt uh, minimizes errors, given what you now know. Mm -hmm. And the minimization of error depends on the topology. Do you want to minimize error on the average? Or do you want to minimize the extreme errors? It makes a completely com a drastic difference to your Bayesian optimization, whether you want to minimize the worst possible error or the average error. So therefore, you even then, the, the, the issue of the topology that you use makes a big difference. And your issues about the animals making decisions like that, the frozen animal making a decision, uh, getting more information, as you just said, that's a, making a Bayesian decision. It's sitting there frozen and scoping up, what is that? Bayesian updating, right? Well, is it scoping up for the average of what the predator is going to do or for the worst possible thing that's going to happen? And is it going to react differently? And the answer is very differently. And that's what the topology of fear tries to capture. Sorry. So uh, let me give you a simple example. Take physics. You drop a ball from a tall building, and you can predict by an equation how long it will take to hit the ground. However, if at the same time you happen to have an earthquake, which is a rare event, you get a different outcome. 
The point of this is trying to address Explain a bit more, because I think people are not used to that. It's <laughs> so, a very important example. So, so, so the point I'm trying to make is <laughs> there are two complex systems involved here. There's the reality, and then there's the brain. And they both have this phenomenon that they are capable, of the butterfly effect, of having a discontinuity that is a very small new piece of Bayesian input will cause a drastic change in your updating of your information. So the question I have, in the studies, in the, trying to, the notable effort, and noble effort everybody's trying to do to try to put this on a scientific basis, there's some of the fundamental limitations that come with it being a complex system. And even more fundamental when you have two interacting complex systems, that is the brain and the reality it's trying to deal with. So my question to, to, to the panel is, how does one simultaneously recognize that there's no fixed point here, that both the decision-making apparatus that is perceiving the reality has this capacity for a butterfly effect, that is to have a discontinuity and suddenly change its reaction instantaneously for a very incrementally small new piece of information, and the reality itself that it's trying to make a decision about has that same basic property. How, do, how does one fix it? How does one know, how can one disentangle where that extra little input came from? It was, in your case, because the person had an experience in real life that was a butterfly effect, it traumatized them, and it therefore made a fundamental change in how they're going to subsequently react? Or was it something that the, the reality was essentially continuous, but something else, as you talk about in the background, suddenly made a fairly uh, normal thing cause a discontinuity in their brain. How does one disentangle those two <laughs> things? You don't. They're coupled. You know, your question is related to the one before, and I think it's about the limits of knowledge. And right. factoring the limits of knowledge into your expectations and your schemas uh, of analysis. Your theory of rationality, even, uh, to have built into it uh, uh, that idea of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, an uncertainty factor, an accidental factor, an unpredictable right. factor. Uh, it, it's a change in the position of knowing. I right. Think. right. So there's one other comment on this. It seems to me that the thing that I always think about in this context is that, and I think that's what Gracilla's uh, 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 theory I think is useful in, is that if we walk around with an expectation of a continuous reality, with a machine that is inherently discontinuous in the way it functions. That will lead to some very incorrect analysis of what is going on, how the system is reacting. And the way to compensate for that at some level is what I call what is called commonly metacognition. That is to acknowledge in a feedback loop to yourself that you are dealing with a series of discontinuities and have some mechanism, both scientifically and personally, in order to process and make your decisions, that ask yourself that question, or is this new piece of information that is causing this discontinuity something that I should reanalyze and make a fundamental change or not, and therefore be able to somehow compensate for the fact that you know you have two interacting uh, circumstances that can expose you to these very rare moments that could cause a very significant change in your reality that's not particularly warranted. But there are animals that have been around since the uh, you know, earliest times of life on Earth that are so primitive they can't possibly have metacognition, yet they've adapted to these discontinuities pretty well. 
Well, I don't think they have been. 99.9% .9 of the species are not here anymore. Well, bacteria, for example. And, uh, yeah, because they reproduce so quickly. And so their the lifetime of their... Well, so they've adapted to that. Uh, okay, that's not, a, that's not a mechanism available to us. Right. And you are 90% bacterial DNA. Yeah, exactly. So don't stand there and talk against that. <laughs> okay, next question. Um, <clears throat> So I'm a trauma psychiatrist, that's how I make my living, and I did read this paper years ago and have thought about it for many years, because I know Graciela and I've talked about this paper, and I, I sort of the comment, I sort of do want to make a comment followed by a question. The comment is, I think that this is a groundbreaking paper. And the reason I think this is a groundbreaking paper is because it very, in some ways, it has a very similar place in the history of this kind of science to the famous paper by, by Becker about rational addiction. And what the paper by Becker with rational addiction did was to move the boundary of what is rational, to show that I could use purely axiomatic rational modeling to explain addiction, which broadened the concept of what rationality was <laughs> and shrunk the concept of what irrationally and emotionally driven things were. That he showed that you could actually mathematically and rationally predict even something as unusual as, as addiction. And I think Graciela's paper takes that even a step further and expands our notion of what is rationality. And what we mean by rationality is something to do with consistency, something to do with comput computability, something to do with predictability and those notions of rationality. So I think it expands the very concept of what we think is rational and what we have to think is, and, and therefore, there are, it's actually less that we have to explain by this vague notion of emotional and irrational. And I think it, I really think it does an amazing job of that. But I think if you want to explain the paper, you have to sit down with a friend of yours who's a mathematician to read this paper. Trust me on that one. Thank you. Hi, um, I've got a quick question about raise this up, about the proximity of fear and desire. So it's been suggested that because these emotions oftentimes occur together, that there might be some tight-knit relationship between them. So they should be close in our topological map of these emotions. But your, your example um, of the rat who's hungry for something that's in the same area as a threat makes me think that the closeness, the the frequent reoccurrence of these emotions in tandem might say more about the events than the actual proximity of those emotions. Every event has multiple components, some of which are good and some of which are bad, and it has multiple potential components, some of which are good and some of which are bad. So you have different reward circuitry and different fear circuitry, and they might be activated at the same time for the same event simply because there are different components to these events. If my fiance invites me to go to dinner with her parents, I'm afraid to <laughs> act like an idiot, and I'm also excited. So I just don't think that should inform our topology of these emotions. It might be the case that different events can excite both of these emotions. And I was wondering, you agree, disagree? <laughs> well, in order to answer that, uh, we would have to get into the notion of desire and, and what I mean by that or what is meant by that in psychoanalysis. Uh, there is a logical connection between fear and desire, not a contingent connection. So what is it? Uh, it has, <laughs> this will take a lot longer than, than we, we can get into, but it has to do with um, the, uh, how can I do it quickly? It has to do with the experience of satisfaction uh, of a wish and the complex symbolic meanings of that satisfaction. Uh, there are fantasies that accompany the satisfaction of a wish. Uh, 
And those fantasies involve ideas that are forbidden. Why? As I said, it's going to take a long time to answer this question. <laughs> what, what it touches on is the, uh, I, just to, it's, it's the notion of repression in a psychoanalytic sense, the psychoanalytic notion of repression, that something occurs that makes the desire uh, uh, linked in some way to the forbidden. And it's the linking to the forbidden that constitutes the threat. I guess that right? constitutes the source of the threat. So it's not contingent. Joe's example was about a contingent connection, which can also exist. It's also, I mean, you, anything that you desire is potentially threatening for its loss. So, I mean, threat comes with almost everything in life. You know, and that's the, the most fundamental thing of staying alive is warding off the threats. And the opportunity to acquire something useful uh, will usually cost you something, there'll be some threats involved that you have to overcome to get it, but also then you have to face the, uh, the, the threats that come from maintaining, hanging on to it, mm -hmm. whether it's love or anything it's, else. I, I would agree that it's about the, the, the centrality of loss. I, I'm wondering yeah. if you but could what consider, is, oh, I'm sorry. Just to, just to comment on your example of the fiancé, it's not a given that you should be afraid because you're going to meet your fiancé's parents. It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you need to see him. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you could consider even the psychoanalytic desire for mastery. Just to simplify the discussion, might you consider that a component of that same stimulus, the event that you fear and the desire for mastery of that fear? Couldn't that be considered a component? And then you can avoid the difficulty of letting that influence your topological map that way? Um, so I guess what your question is, is could there be a, a more um, sort of Euclidean or linear explanation of how it is that threat and desire link up? I, I guess ultimately I'm thinking it would be a mistake to conflate the events that trigger certain desires and those desires or emotions generally in themselves. So ultimately, we were just dealing with different systems. And I guess I, I kind of agreed with your point. Uh, what, what is the topical, topological map telling us? I understand its utility in driving research questions, but does it really tell us anything about the act, is it, does it have any predictive value? Yes. And that, that's, 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 that's the point. If okay. it didn't, forget it. Who cares? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Question. Thank you. Uh, we will end here.